0: Welcome to the UTG at Work podcast. I'm Deacon Mike Houghton. I'm the executive director of an apostolate called UTG at Work. Our mission is to help women and men joyfully live their faith and witness to Christ in the gospel in the workplace. I'm happy to be with you as we explore the Sunday gospel in ways that help people who work. This weekend, we celebrate the Feast of the Transfiguration, and our gospel is a reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, conversing with him. Then Peter said to Jesus in reply, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud cast a shadow over them. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell prostrate, and they were very much afraid. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and do not be afraid. And when the disciples raised their eyes, they saw no one else but Jesus alone. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, Do not tell anyone of the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. Tradition tells us that Jesus' transfiguration took place on Mount Tabor, a dome-shaped mountain in Israel near Nazareth where Jesus grew up. At the top of Mount Tabor today, there's a beautiful Franciscan church called the Basilica of the Transfiguration. The architect of this church and of many other churches at sites around the Holy Land was Antonio Barluzzi. Mr. Barluzzi designed the church so that every year at sunrise on August 6th, which is the Feast of the Transfiguration, the sun rises directly through the windows at the entrance and reflects off the mirrored wall in front of the church so that for just a few moments there's a blinding effect from all of the light. This was intentionally designed by Mr. Barluzzi to imitate the dazzling white image of our Lord at his transfiguration. There are two side chapels off of the main church. And fittingly enough, one is for Moses and one is for Elijah, the two men with whom Jesus spoke at his transfiguration. Moses represented the law and Elijah represented the prophets. In his glorified state, Jesus was the fulfillment of both the law and the prophecies. Outside the church, there's a platform on which one can stand to look out at the valley below, where some believe that the battle of Armageddon will one day take place at the end of the world. In 2019, I had the great honor of serving as deacon at Mass in this beautiful basilica. Like so many other things from our Holy Land pilgrimage, it made quite an impression on me. For anyone who hasn't yet been to the Holy Land, I recommend that you try to get there if it's physically and financially possible. St. Jerome said that the Holy Land is the fifth gospel. This is where the Bible comes alive. When I read the Bible today, I read it differently because of the gift of being there to see so many of the sights in person. This Sunday, August 6th, is the Feast of the Transfiguration. Perhaps some of you are thinking, we hear about the Transfiguration pretty often in the lectionary. And you would be correct. We do. The story of the Transfiguration is the gospel passage proclaimed every year on the second Sunday of Lent. It's also the gospel passage for today's feast day. So whenever August 6th falls on a Sunday, which is true this year, we hear the story of the Transfiguration not just once, but twice on Sundays during the liturgical year. The Transfiguration is explicitly mentioned in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It may seem odd that the only Gospel author who doesn't mention the Transfiguration is John, since John was the only Gospel author who was actually there to see it. If John personally witnessed it, you may be wondering, why didn't he mention it in his Gospel? Well, perhaps he did. In the first chapter of the Gospel of John, we hear these words, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, and we saw his glory the glory as of the Father's only Son, full of grace and truth. Some Bible scholars have suggested that when John says that he saw his glory, he's referring to seeing Jesus at the Transfiguration. So you could say that the Transfiguration is actually found in one form or another in all four Gospels, explicitly in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and implicitly in John. I'm reminded of a time some years ago when my son Matthew was playing AAU basketball, As I often did, I was working the scorer's table, running the clock, tracking fouls, keeping stats on the team. Before the game, the coach handed me the roster with all the names of the boys and the starting five marked off with an asterisk. After I looked it over, I pulled the coach aside and said, Hey coach, four of your starting five players are named Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You better not blow this. In the Transfiguration, Jesus revealed himself in his glorified state to Peter, James, and John, and in so doing, he gave them a preview of what he would look like in his glorified state in heaven. But the question comes to mind, why? Why did he do this? Now, I suppose there could be many reasons why. When God does what God does, there are often multiple levels of understanding as to why. But one reason seems to be rather clear. In all three gospel accounts, there's a very specific sequence of events which takes place, and that sequence points us to a conclusion about why. The sequence goes like this. First, we hear Jesus telling his disciples for the very first time about his impending passion and death and resurrection, and in all three cases, they're confused and they're upset as to what this means. Next, Jesus assures them that some of those with him will not die until they see him in all of his glory. And immediately following this, is the transfiguration, which fulfills his promise to them. Peter, James, and John did in fact see him in all of his glory. Jesus brought them to see the event so that they could understand that his coming passion and death were intimately linked to his divinity. In other words, just after he told them that he'd be killed, he showed them a glimpse of his divine self in the transfiguration so that they could appreciate that his sacrifice is part of the divine plan for salvation. Now, I have no doubt that this is true. I've read it from multiple Bible scholars, but I personally think that there's more to the story. I think that the transfiguration is also about hope. Jesus knew that his disciples were going to see him insulted and belittled, and that they would be first-hand witnesses to his passion and death. And his inner circle of Peter and James and John, the men he took with him to the transfiguration, were going to be the most profoundly impacted. These three men had a special place in Jesus' heart. Remember that these are the same three men whom he would later bring with him to his agony in the garden at Gethsemane. These men loved Jesus, and he loved them. And so, when he gave them a glimpse of his glorified state, he was giving them a memory to cling to when things looked bleak, especially in the days of his coming passion and death. He gave them reason to believe that something better was coming, even though they didn't quite understand what it all meant. In other words, He gave them hope. Peter was so excited by what he saw that he wanted to just stay there and soak it all in. He wanted to build three tents to mark the moment. He was clearly moved by seeing Jesus in his transfigured state. He was filled with awe and joy in the moment, and soon he would need to draw on that awe and joy to give him hope during the Lord's passion and crucifixion. How much you and I need hope as well. So often in life we experience great moments of despair, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a job, a broken relationship, a divorce. These things bring us down, and they often stay with us for long periods of time. It seems like the highs in life come and go in a heartbeat, but the lows, they can haunt us forever. And if ever there were a place for despair, it's the workplace. When the alarm goes off on Monday morning to start another work week, precious few of us are joyfully jumping out of bed to get things rolling again. We know that there's another battle waiting for us, whether that battle is fought in the office, in the field, or in the home office. For many people, work is the place where they are most depressed and most despondent. When we're with family and friends, we can share what really matters to us, whether we do that at a bar on Friday night or after church on Sunday morning. But at work, we're asked to hide what matters most to us, to embrace instead the corporation's goals and objectives. Now, to be clear, there's nothing wrong with honoring what the company values. The company gives us the resources we need to raise our families, to pay for our houses and our cars, and to hopefully someday retire in peace. Work can, and it should, bring dignity. But the reality is that more often than not, the dignity that we could feel at work is overcome by the politics, the unreasonable people, or the sheer stress that comes with the job. More often than not, we're forced to hide what matters to us most at work so that we can be the person that the company wants us to be. I recently had a conversation with a woman who worked in a small office where people were free to talk about their faith, and she took it for granted. But she recently switched jobs, and in her new office, talking about the faith is forbidden. The change has been hard for her because her faith is a big part of her life. She now feels, as so many other Christians feel, that she's not free to bring her whole self to work. And it's for reasons like this that we all need hope. We, like Peter and James and John, need to know that there's something better coming. Without hope, we can fall into despair. But when there is hope, we can rally our souls and find the courage to move forward with confidence. So, what is this hope that we Christians share? It's our common understanding that the world as we know it today is not how it will be forever. We who are disciples of Jesus know beyond a shadow of a doubt that what awaits us in the afterlife is infinitely better than what we experience here on earth today. What awaits us is heaven itself. There we too will be transfigured and we'll spend our eternity in the presence of God and of family and friends who likewise live their lives as disciples. When there's no hope, we can be sucked into the void of negativity that surrounds us in our world. Our society is increasingly secular, divisive, even combative. And fundamentally, the root of the problem is a loss of hope due to a loss of appreciation for the promises of God. But when there is hope, when we embrace the Lord and his message, we find peace. Peace that comes even amidst turmoil. And here's the interesting thing about the peace that comes from hope. Others can see it in you. And they wonder, what does he or she have that I don't? The answer, of course, is that we have a hope that overcomes the negativity of the world around us. Now, most of the time, others will keep to themselves. But every now and then, someone will get the courage to ask, How can you find joy and peace in such a messed up world? Or, Why do you seem so content when working here is so miserable? This is your chance to evangelize. Tell them that your peace comes from your faith. And if they're intrigued by that, tell them that you have hope because of our Lord who in his transfiguration gave us a glimpse of how great things will be someday. And what will be someday is infinitely better than what is. And so we who believe have hope. The transfiguration of our Lord is proclaimed so often during the year because it's so profound and so significant to all of us. From a theological perspective, it shows us that the suffering and death of Jesus are intimately tied to his divinity. This helps us to better understand God's plan for salvation. But from a simple, practical perspective, it gives us hope. As you move forward in your journey toward heaven, take time to embrace the hope that Jesus gives us. Recognize that we as Christians are called to be people of hope and people of joy, including, and perhaps especially, at work. So don't let yourself be brought down by the negativity that surrounds you, whether that negativity comes from current events or from the culture of your workplace. Focus on the bigger picture and recognize that in the transfiguration of our Lord, we're all given a vision to cling to that brings us hope, even in the darkest of times. Let your hope be not just a source of peace for you, but also a beacon of light for others. Thanks for joining me for this week's UTG at Work podcast. I look forward to meeting again next week. In the meantime, I encourage you to boldly live out your faith in the workplace in the week ahead. I'll pray for your success. And I ask that you pray for the success of this UTG at Work apostolate. If you want to learn more about us, please visit utgatwork.org. Now go in peace, glorifying the Lord by your life.